And so together we read, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Well, Jesus was a great uh, storyteller. He knew about the scripture, of course, and he knew about life and he knew about building. He was a carpenter. He knew how to build things. He knew how to fix things. He knew how to fix broken things like broken hearts and broken hopes, broken faith. He was a builder. And he concludes his marvelous Sermon on the Mount, the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, with the scripture that we read together a few moments ago. Now, this is written, inspired by God, of course, but it was written by a man named Matthew. Now, we kind of take Matthew for granted sometimes. You don't, some people don't realize how detested Matthew was by the Jews of his day. I mean, Matthew was just at, at the bottom of the social ladder as far as his fellow Jews were concerned because he had betrayed them. He had sold himself out to be a tax collector for the invading and occupying troops of the Romans. And so all of his Jewish friends just marked him off. He was just a detestable character in their eyes. And Jesus called him to be one of his disciples. Now that upset the apple cart of the Pharisees no end. It just, it just tore them up. Here, Jesus was calling this disreputable traitor to be one of his close circle of friends, his disciples. And uh, Matthew is the one who has recorded this, the first book in your New Testament. And so he records the Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, Matthew, being a tax collector, was a man who was interested in, uh, by his nature, to be a good uh, bookkeeper. He had to have detail, had to be organized. And there is a sense in which the Gospel of Matthew may be the most orderly gospel of all four, with the possible exception of John's gospel. But Matthew seems to have more order about his. And when you read it, it, it is not haphazardly written. Uh, it is inspired by God, but he came through the experience and through the mind and through the pen of this man, uh, Matthew. And so he tells, concludes his Sermon on the Mount with a story, like a lot of us preachers conclude our sermons with a story, which is what I'm going to do in a little while when I get to the story at the end. And a number of you in this room are preachers. And by the way, Warren, not only or my good friend Warren Hultgren is here, but his mutual friend and my mutual friend, Howard Butt, is here. And Warren was Howard's pastor at one time in Corpus. And the three of us have used each other's sermons across the years. And uh, when uh, Howard and Warren 
preach better sermons, so will I. Um, <laughs> thanks to good friends. But um, uh, Jesus was a preacher and about half of everything he said was a story. And he tells this story. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and here's the key word, underline it in your mind and your Bible if you have it, puts them into practice. Now he is his, here in the Sermon on the Mount, he has said some fantastic things. And we can quote a lot of them and heard most of them and maybe all of us have read them repeatedly. But Jesus, here he's closing it out. Jesus said, now look here. You've heard all of this. But Jesus is not just here giving us abstract philosophical speculations. He's here saying, hey, look, here's something you not only read, here's not something you not only think about, here's something you do. Here's something that not only says something to your mind, it says something to your feet and to your hands. Puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on a rock, on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not hear the words, believe the words, quote the words, preach the words, teach the words, sing the words, but does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What Jesus is saying here is the truth does not exist in abstract Jean-Paul Sartre said the sin of our time is that we have taken the concrete and turned it into an abstract. Well, Jesus did not do that. He would take the abstract and he'd turn it into the concrete. And that's exactly what he is saying here. All of these things that I have said, you are to do. In the, in, in the theology of Jesus, words and deeds are inseparable. They are two sides to the same coin. What we believe, we live. What we proclaim, we practice. And here is Jesus saying we are to put these things into practice. Now, uh, just a, a, quick, a quick aside about it. Uh, it. We need to point out the fact that Jesus did, distinguished between a wise man and a foolish man uh, on the basis of one thing and one thing only, and that was the foundation upon which he built his life. He did not distinguish wisdom and foolishness uh, on the basis of the place where they built. Because there is no place that does not at sometimes have a storm. There is no gated neighborhood that tells troubles to stay off base. No way. They come to anybody and to everybody. As the old Spanish proverb says, there is no home which does not at some time know its hush. Storms come. Make a difference where you live. However elite the neighborhood might be, however poor it might be, storms come everywhere. And Jesus does not distinguish between wisdom and foolishness on the basis of the neighborhood you live in or the place where you build. Nor does he distinguish on the difference of the materials out of which you build. One man may be a businessman, another a doctor, a woman a teacher, a homemaker, a physician, uh, a missionary, a preacher. Jesus does not distinguish between wisdom and foolishness on the basis of the materials of our life. 
Now, that is if we use the materials of our life for the glory of God, the businessman, the housewife, the teacher, the surgeon, whoever he or she may be, the missionary, the preacher, to use whatever talents God has given us, whatever lumber of life he has given us to build with, he will use as long as it is built upon the rock. It is the foundation that is the distinguishing feature between wisdom and foolish in the estimation of Jesus Christ, and he's the one who counts. His estimation counts. It matters, and it matters greatly. So build on the rock. Well, what is the rock? Well, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, at times, he'd put his foot in his mouth and say the wrong thing. But at other times, he would just, he would just reach to the heights. And he did here at Caesarea Philippi when he said, when he, Jesus said, who am I to you? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which should come into the world. And Jesus said, I believe Jesus patted him on the back. Nice going, Simon. Nice going. Blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. My Father which is in heaven. And he went on to say, I will build my church upon this rock. You are Peter, and I will build my church upon this rock. What's he talking about? He's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the revelation of God to the human mind and will accepted by the mind and confessed to the world. That's the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Have you had that kind of experience? I'm not talking about a building and I'm not talking about an organization. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about a personal relationship. Flesh and blood did not reveal it to me or to you. God reveals himself to us and he comes into our minds and our hearts and our emotions and we accept him and then we confess him to the world. Jesus said, that's what I'm going to build my church on. My church is built upon an open confession of God in Christ as the rock upon which we build our lives. The church is to be built on the rock of the revelation of God through Christ, accepted by us and confessed openly to the world. The church. Now church buildings sometimes get hurt like ours did. That lower floor of our educational building, if you uh, want to see a disaster area, you can go over there and look, although it's been cleaned up somewhat and all the water's out, of course. But on Monday, my son Steve and I were going over on the southeast side to film some spots and to film some material. You'll see it next Sunday on the screens here in the church. So the Wheatley Heights Baptist Church over in the southeast part of town, I had seen it on television. That part of town, the Salado Creek, uh, just engulfed that place. You may have seen this church on national television. On national television because they were going to have a wedding on Saturday night and the, and the bride and the bridesmaids and others were in that church and they couldn't get out. The water came so quickly and rose so, so rapidly that they couldn't get out. And the groom was a few blocks away. And I talked to him on Wednesday. I was back over there on Wednesday. And we were back over there again later in the week. Uh, I, I met the groom and he was about a block or two away trying to get up there. And he was in water up to his shoulders. Uh, and, and he said that the current was so strong I couldn't make it. And then a boat came and rescued the, uh, the girls out of the... Uh, 
out of the church. How many of you saw that on television? It was on CNN. Well, um, I, I, I talked to the young groom and they got married on Sunday. They didn't get married in that church because that church is a, is a shambles. I'll tell you about it in a moment. Uh, but they got married on Sunday. And I said to him, standing in the hall of what's left of the educational building over there, uh, I said, uh, well, let me tell you, you will never have as stormy a marriage as you had a stormy wedding. You're, you're going to have a wonderful marriage. I mean, you got the storms behind you, young man. They are over. But that church, uh, we went over there, and you'll see some of it next Sunday in an interview with the pastor, L.A. Williams. The church is 44 years old. It's seated about uh, 250, 300 people, beautiful educational building. The water came, and it turned that thing inside out. The pews were all on top of each other. We were walking in mud three inches deep. Uh, the communion table was on top of the organ or what was left of the organ. Uh, all of the Sunday school literature on the ground, in, on the floor, in the mud. It's just, it's a, it's a pitiful sight to behold. And there are people over there that have just been destroyed. Everything. They didn't just lose something. They lost everything. Some of them. Uh, John Stanley's been over there a lot and working with them. And we're going to be doing some things with them. Next Sunday, we're going to be beginning our offering uh, for world missions. And a percentage of that offering is going to go to help those folks over at Wheatley Heights Baptist Church and in that area. Now, the pastor and the people in that church are surveying everybody in the neighborhood to find out what their needs are. For example, I hadn't even thought of this. There were some elderly people there who had lost their medicine. And they couldn't get it refilled because they will not refill medicine until after a period of time. We've all run into that, haven't we? Well, there's some people that, uh, that, that are in dire need of some medical help. So doctors could either, if they have samples, could provide it. Or maybe drug companies could provide it. Or doctors could write new prescriptions to help these people through a difficult time. Uh, and our church, the Tr Tr Trinity Missions Committee, some of you may have received this in Sunday school, uh, need to join our work team at Wheatley Heights Baptist Church. We're not just going to send money. We're going to send people over there. We want people to go over there and we're going to help that church be rebuilt and help the homes in that area and help the families in that area. Please contact our work team coordinator, Charles Pollard, who's on our missions committee and was over there with us on Wednesday. Call him at 490-2985. We're collecting blankets, towels, pillows, linens, plastic bags containing toothpaste, toothbrush, soap, brushes, combs, deodorant, wash clothes, etc. Bring them to the gym at the church here or to the Rubel Center and bring some money next Sunday. We're going to take up an offering that will help defray the expenses of that over there as well as help make a difference in the world beyond because there are floods everywhere in people's lives. The pastor and I were standing there in the hall talking on, uh, on Wednesday and uh, he pointed out something that I had not noticed. The houses across the street from the church had been just almost totally destroyed. I mean, cars turned upside down. I mean, it just, it's indescribable. You saw it on television, but there's something impersonal about television. When you see it up close and in person, you can feel it and you can smell it. And it's just different. And it was just different. And, uh, to be there on the scene and to see the people responding to one another. And you'll see the pastor interviewed on the, on the film next Sunday. But he was standing there. He said, you know, he said, you know, uh, Brother Fanning, I noticed something. The water came from the south. It was just a great flood of water rushing in. And it buckled the walls of the church even. It just, it's, it's unreal. And, but the houses, the first couple or three houses north of the church, adjacent to the church, north of it, 
had some high water, but they did not have the destructive force of that water coming in. The church took the blunt of the power of that water. The houses across the street, not in the shadow of the, of the church, they didn't have that kind of help. And I said to him, I said, preacher, that'll preach. That, that will preach Sunday. And it's going to preach here for a few moments this Sunday. You put your life in the shadow of Christ's church. You put your family in the life of a church that's founded upon the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, and some floods will come. But God's people, through God working through his people will take the brunt of that blow and you will survive. He will be with you through the storm. His church, the, he said, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And if your life's in the shadow of Christ and his church, nothing can overcome you. Yes, you can have storms. Yes, you can have troubles. Yes, you can have floods. But you will not go under. You will not. Now, Jesus moved on to begin to practice what he preached. And I hope you'll take some time to look at the eighth chapter of the book of Matthew. Those chapter divisions are wonderful for locating scripture, but sometimes they interrupt the flow of what God is trying to say to us. And I think that happens here. The minute he said that, what did he do? He went out to practice it. First verse of the eighth chapter, when he came down from the mountainside, in other words, when he came down from preaching the Sermon on the Mount, when he came down from the pulpit or wherever he preached it, when he came down, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. And he said, I will it be clean. He went out and touched a contaminated leper. That was against the law. It was against the religious law for him to do that. That meant he was unclean religiously in the eyes of the religious crowd of that day. Here he was touching this man. Well, where is the body of Jesus today? You're it. We're it. We're his body. Are we to be exclusive? Are we to be indifferent? Are we to be withdrawn? We're to be holier than thou? We don't reach out and touch. Jesus reached out and touched the most contaminated people in his day, the lepers. And it was the touch of love that healed that leper. What is the church here for if not to be the hands of Christ to reach out and touch a hurting world? Because we touch it not with selfish love, but with unselfish love, not with manipulation, but with commitment of love. Reached out and touched him. Well, I can remember back when we started Alpha Home. Some of you can. Some folks were just so adamantly opposed to having a home for women alcoholics. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest things this church has ever done, I believe, to reach out and touch people who are, who are captivated and controlled by alcohol and by drugs. It's one of the best ministries this church has ever had and thank God for it. And it's expanded and expanded and expanded to reach out and touch others. But I tell you, friend, wherever anybody's hurting, wherever, wherever anybody is in trouble, whoever they are, whatever their trouble is, whatever their condition is, God's people are to be there to put an arm around them. 
he reached out and said, oh, it, it just upset those Pharisees beyond words. Then, then to add insult to injury, what does he do next? He went to Capernaum and a centurion came to him asking for help. A centurion. Here was a Roman soldier, an invader, a Gentile, a sinner, and he came to Jesus. Now, the, the religious leaders of that day, they, they didn't care. They detested this man. He was a Gentile. He was an invader. He was a, he was a Roman soldier. And if you'd left it up to them, they would have assassinated him. They would have assassinated him. They hated him. But Jesus assisted him. Came to Jesus and said, Lord, help me. My servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof because just say the word. My, you just say the word. My servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes, that one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. And he said to those who were following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. A Roman centurion detested by the religious crowd of that day. Jesus compliments as having greater faith than anybody in Israel. Now you don't think that hit their hot button? Oh, those religious leaders of that day, they could not believe that he would make such a radical statement as that. And Jesus went on to say, he even, he even went even further. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see who Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about people who substitute religion for a personal experience with Jesus Christ and who oppose reaching out to help people who are hurting and accepting people, whoever they are, wherever they come from. Oh, you just go on in this eighth chapter, 16th verse. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick people whose minds were all troubled and distressed and disturbed and who were assumed to be demon-possessed, maybe were, whatever their condition was, Jesus reached out to help them. My goodness, everywhere he went, touching people, healing people, helping people, irrespective of who they were. The universality of Jesus' love, the inclusiveness of Jesus' love, it's just overwhelming. He's for everybody and anybody. He wants you if you want life, if you want peace, if you want joy, if you want spiritual comfort inside, Jesus is your man and he's the one that comes to you. He comes to you. Um, I want to tell you a story that Bishop Sheen told about. I, I met Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. I was with him twice. Um, some of you don't know Bishop Sheen, never heard of him, but Bishop Sheen was as popular in the late 40s and 50s on television as uh, Billy Graham is today, uh, on black and white TV, a 30-minute program uh, sponsored by Admiral Television. I remember that. And I used to watch him. He had the ability to communicate on television like few people I've ever seen. How many of you remember seeing Bishop Fulton J. Sheen? Well, uh, 
I, I was on an airplane coming from New York, and I don't know what I was doing up there. I, I was coming. Oh, I preached up there at Calvary Baptist Church. That was it. Been there in a revival. And the Baptist Church right across the side street from Carnegie Hall. And uh, I was flying back to Dallas, and I was on the, this is back in the day when we had prop-driven four-engine planes. Those were DC, what, fours or sixes or something like that? I didn't know what they were. I just prayed they'd stay up. I didn't care what the, <laughs> what the number was as long as God knew I was on that thing. Um, and I was sitting there by myself. It wasn't crowded at all. Very few people on the plane, and I was working and writing a little bit. And the stewardess uh, then, we called stewardesses, now flight attendant came by and said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm working on a sermon. I'm going back to Dallas and preach, and I've been in New York preaching. She said, oh, you're, you're a preacher. I said, yes, I'm an evangelist, travel around preaching. And it's long before I came to Trinity. And uh, she said, well, you'd be interested to know that uh, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen's on the plane. He's seat, seated back in the back seated alone. I said, you think I'd go back and speak to him? He said, well, it's up to you. Well, we'd been in the air about 30, 45 minutes. And so I got enough courage. I mustered my courage and I went back there and he was reading and he had some glasses on like this, some of these little half glasses, kind of like that. And he was reading and I sat down beside him and I said, uh, boy, I was just hoping and praying and trusting that he had a sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> Because I said, Bishop, Bishop Sheen, I have a confession to make. <laughs> and he had his glasses on and he took them off and he said, well, he got very serious. I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I, he said, yes, my son, what is it? I said, uh, Bishop, I am a Southern Baptist preacher. And I have preached some of your material all over the Southern Baptist Convention and I've not given you credit for and I'm for it and I'm here to ask your forgiveness for plagiarism. <laughs> well, he laughed and he said, well, what have you read? And I quoted him. I had memorized two or three paragraphs out of some things that he had written and I still quote them today. I quoted two or three paragraphs. He said, you know my works better than I do. I said, no, I don't. You wrote it. I just mimicked it and <laughs> quoted it. And uh, we visited together about 30, 45 minutes. And then event after event occurred and years went by and I came here and went to Eastern Europe to preach in some of those days with the Sound Foundation and came back and was interviewed by George Cornell of the Associated Press. And I happened to be by, at the invitation of, uh, of John Heyman on the advisory committee for the, for the film Jesus. Maybe some of you have seen that film. It's been translated into hundreds of languages shown all over the world. And John Heyman had asked me to be one of the consultants on there. Well, they didn't need any consulting. They just had done a marvelous movie without anyone's help. And Bishop Sheen was also on that committee, although I'd not met him. But he read about my, read in the New York paper about my experiences in Eastern Europe. And he told John Heyman that he wanted to talk to me, <clears throat> excuse me, he wanted to talk to me because he wanted to know more about what was going on in Eastern Europe among the Christians there. And so I was invited to the home of, uh, of Bishop Fulton Sheen. He lived in a, in a, in a, a beautiful condominium, an apartment overlooking the East River over by uh, the United Nations building. And we visited together for about two or three hours. It was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. And we talked about books and about preachers and about preaching. And uh, I looked at his library and we share a lot of the same books in the library. And he asked about what was going on in Eastern Europe. And I never will forget what he said. And when I told him about what was happening over there, 
He made this statement. He said, the God of history is moving. His chariots are riding on the storm. Listen, God's chariots will ride on the storm in San Antonio. And they'll ride on the storm in your life and in mine. Bishop Sheen told a story I want to tell you. He told a story about going to the Statler Hotel in Boston for a speaking engagement before it was Statler Hilton, the Statler Hotel. He was seated in the lobby reading and a shoeshine boy came in the front door and Bishop Sheen said he had on a D shirt for dirty rather than a T-shirt. And the manager or the concierge of the hotel told the boy to get out. And Bishop Sheen watched the boy get ushered out of, the, out of the hotel lobby. And so he went out to talk to the boy. And uh, he said, went out and he said, son, um, why aren't you in school? He said, I got kicked out. You got kicked out. He said, what's your name? And the little boy told him his name, 12 or 13 year old boy. He told him his name. He said, you have an Irish name. Are you a Catholic? He said, yes, Father, I'm a Catholic. He said, were you in a Catholic school? He said, yes. And they kicked you out. What did they kick you out for? He said, I got in a fight with a boy. And they kicked me out. He said, would you like to go back to that school? He said, oh, Father, they, they won't let me back. They've never let anybody back. Who kicked you out? Well, the principal and the mother superior. He said, if I get you back in that school, will you stop fighting and will you get a good education? He said, you can't do it. No one's ever been allowed back in. He said, but if I do, will you do it? He said, yes, Father, I will. Bishop Sheen said, meet me here tomorrow night. Same spot. The next day, Bishop Sheen went to the school and had a meeting with the principal and with the mother superior. And he told about meeting this boy and about him being dismissed from the school. And he said, let me tell you a story, a true story from history. Bishop Sheen speaking now to the principal and the mother superior. There were three boys that were expelled from religious schools that I know about. One was expelled for drawing pictures during geography class. A second was expelled because he would get in fights, like the little shoeshine boy. The third one was expelled because he was reading some forbidden literature and was hiding it under his mattress. Bishop Sheen said, I do not know the names of the valedictorians of the class that those three boys were in. But I know the names of the three boys. One was Adolf Hitler. The second, Benito Mussolini. And the third, Joseph Stalin. We don't kick anybody out. We don't give the cold shoulder to anyone in a D-shirt and not be the body of Christ. 
we accept anybody and everybody. Well, the little boy went back to school. He finished school. And today, he spent the rest of his life as a missionary to the Eskimos. Jesus never expelled anybody. Judas expelled himself. The rich young ruler said no. Jesus never said no. Jesus always says, come to school. Come on in. Come on in. I'd like everybody to bow their head and close their eyes. I want to do something a little different than I usually do. Everybody in the corral, I don't want anybody to look. I'm the only one that's going to be looking. And I have never embarrassed anyone in my life. I'm not going to call your name. I'm not going to, if I do know your name, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I am not going to embarrass you. But I do want to ask you a question. How many of you in this room need to have a personal relationship with Jesus in your heart? You know about him, you've heard about him, but you don't feel you've ever had that personal touch of Jesus Christ upon your heart. That's one group. Or somebody here who knows they're a Christian and yet they've not been a part of the church and not been faithful to it or maybe not even joined it and you're struggling with that. Maybe you've been coming here for a long time. You've been thinking about it and you'd like to be prayed for. Not by name, but just to be prayed for. Or maybe you're here and you need to just come for prayer. Some things in your life, a rededication possibly, to say I just need to renew my faith and my commitment to the Lord. And I want you to pray for me. I asked that question in the early service this morning. Had a young couple, both come accepting the Lord as Savior. Young boy coming to accept the Lord as his Savior. Two people coming to join the church. I didn't embarrass them and I'll not embarrass you. But if you have that prayer need, one woman said after the service, I raised my hand and I should have come. Do you have that need in your life to accept Christ or to join his church or to renew your faith and commitment to him? Has God's Holy Spirit prompted you to have that kind of hunger in your spirit? If so, just raise your hand and put it down. Yes, ma'am. God bless you and you and you, sir, and you and you and you and you and you. And upstairs, I can... Anybody upstairs in the balcony? God bless you. Yes, ma'am. God bless you. Anyone else? Anybody in the corral? Nobody's looking out there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. Now, dear Lord, we don't, we have no idea what's going on in the hearts and the lives and the minds of these people, but you do. And I pray, dear God, that if it is their your will for them in this moment to accept you, to confess you, to join your church, to come in recommitment, to come for prayer. As one man came this morning deeply concerned, weeping, personal concern. Dear Lord, this is your invitation and we're going to very quietly pray and want your spirit to move among us and to accomplish what your will is in each of our lives. Now, we're going to remain seated. We're going to keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. No one's going to sing. We may just have the choir hum 
just as I am, but I don't want anybody in the choir to open your eyes, just very quietly. And if God's in, is speaking to you and God's impressed you, maybe you raised your hand, you need to come. Maybe you didn't raise your hand and you need to come make a decision. Just stand up and come. I'll be right here at the front to greet you and welcome you and talk to you and pray with you. Just stand and come. <laughs> 